Book Five, Chapter One of The Black Arrow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Black Arrow by Robert Louis Stevenson. Book Five, entitled Crookback. Chapter One The Shrill Trumpet. Very early the next morning, before the first peep of the day, Dick arose, changed his garments, armed himself once more like a gentleman, and set forth for Lawless's den in the forest. There, it will be remembered, he had left Lord Foxham's papers, and to get these and be back in time for the tryst with the young Duke of Gloucester could only be managed by an early start and the most vigorous walking. The frost was more rigorous than ever, the air windless and dry, and stinging to the nostril. The moon had gone down, but the stars were still bright and numerous, and the reflection from the snow was clear and cheerful. There was no need for a lamp to walk by, nor, in that still but ringing air, the least temptation to delay. Dick had crossed the greater part of the open ground between Shoreby and the forest, and had reached the bottom of the little hill, some hundred yards below the cross of St. Bride, when— through the stillness of the black morn, there rang forth the note of a trumpet, so shrill, clear, and piercing, that he thought he had never heard the match of it for audibility. It was blown once, and then hurriedly a second time, and then the clash of steel succeeded. At this young Shelton pricked his ears, and drawing his sword, ran forward up the hill. Presently he came in sight of the cross, and was aware of a most fierce encounter raging on the road before it. There were seven or eight assailants, and but one to keep head against them, but so active and dexterous was this one, so desperately did he charge and scatter his opponents, so deftly keep his footing on the ice, that already, before Dick could intervene, he had slain one, wounded another, and kept the whole in check. Still, it was by a miracle that he continued his defence, and at any moment, any accident, the least slip of foot or error of hand, his life would be a forfeit. "'Hold ye well, sir, here is help!' cried Richard, and forgetting that he was alone, and that the cry was somewhat irregular, "'To the arrow! to the arrow!' he shouted, as he fell upon the rear of the assailants. These were stout fellows also, for they gave not an inch at this surprise, but faced about, and fell with astonishing fury upon Dick." Four against one, the steel flashed about him in the starlight. The sparks flew fiercely. One of the men opposed to him fell. In the stir of the fight he hardly knew why. Then he himself was struck across the head, and though the steel cap below his hood protected him, the blow beat him down upon one knee, with a brain whirling like a windmill sail. Meanwhile the man whom he had come to rescue, instead of joining in the conflict, had, on the first sign of intervention, leaped aback and blown again, and yet more urgently and loudly, on that same shrill-voiced trumpet that began the alarm. Next moment, indeed, his foes were on him, and he was once more charging and fleeing, leaping, stabbing, dropping to his knee, and using indifferently sword and dagger, foot and hand, with the same unshaken courage and feverish energy and speed. But that ear-piercing summons had been heard at last. There was a muffled rushing in the snow and in a good hour for Dick, who saw the sword-points glitter already at his throat, 
there poured forth out of the wood upon both sides a disorderly torrent of mounted men-at-arms, each cased in iron, and with visor lowered, each bearing his lance in rest, or his sword bared and raised, and each carrying, so to speak, a passenger, in the shape of an archer or page, who leaped one after another from their perches, and had presently doubled the array. The original assailants, seeing themselves outnumbered and surrounded, threw down their arms without a word. "'Seize me, these fellows!' said the hero of the trumpet, and when his order had been obeyed, he drew near to Dick and looked him in the face. Dick, returning the scrutiny, was surprised to find in one who had displayed such strength, skill, and energy, a lad no older than himself, slightly deformed, with one shoulder higher than the other, and of a pale, painful, and distorted countenance. The eyes, however, were very clear and bold. "'Sir!' said this lad. "'You came in good time for me, and none too early.' "'My lord,' returned Dick, with a faint sense that he was in the presence of a great personage, "'ye are yourself so marvellous a good swordsman that I believe ye had managed them single-handed. Howbeit, it was certainly well for me that your men delayed no longer than they did.' "'How knew ye who I was?' demanded the stranger. "'Even now, my lord,' Dick answered, I am ignorant of whom I speak with. "'Is it so?' asked the other. "'And yet you threw yourself head first into this unequal battle.' "'I saw one man valiantly contending against many,' replied Dick, "'and I had thought myself dishonoured not to bear him aid.' A singular sneer played about the young nobleman's mouth as he made answer. "'These are very brave words, but to the more essential—' "'Are ye Lancaster or York?' "'My lord, I make no secret. I am clear for York,' Dick answered. "'By the mass!' replied the other. "'It is well for you.' And so saying, he turned towards one of his followers. "'Let me see,' he continued in the same sneering and cruel tones, "'let me see a clean end of these brave gentlemen. Trust me them up.' There were but five survivors of the attacking party. Archers seized them by the arms, they were hurried to the borders of the wood, and each placed below a tree of suitable dimension. The rope was adjusted. An archer, carrying the end of it, hastily clambered overhead, and before a minute was over, and without a word passing upon either hand, the five men were swinging by the neck. "'And now,' cried the deformed leader, "'Back to your posts, and when I summon you next, be readier to attend.' "'My Lord Duke,' said one man, "'beseech you, tarry not here alone. Keep but a handful of lances at your hand.' "'Fellow,' said the Duke, "'I have forborne to chide you for your slowness. Cross me not, therefore. I trust my hand and arm for all that I be crooked. You were backward when the trumpet sounded, and ye are now too forward with your counsels.' But it is ever so, last with a lance and first with tongue. Let it be reversed. And with a gesture that was not without a sort of dangerous nobility, he waved them off. The footmen climbed again to their seats behind the men-at-arms, and the whole party moved slowly away and disappeared in twenty different directions under the cover of the forest. The day was by this time beginning to break and the stars to fade. The first grey glimmer of dawn shone upon the countenances of the two young men, who now turned once more to face each other. "'Here,' 
said the duke, "'ye have seen my vengeance, which is, like my blade, both sharp and ready. But I would not have you, for all Christendom, suppose me thankless. You that came to my aid with a good sword and a better courage, unless that ye recoil from my misshapenness, come to my heart.' And so saying, the young leader held out his arms for an embrace. In the bottom of his heart Dick already entertained a great terror and some hatred for the man whom he had rescued, but the invitation was so worded that it would not have been merely discourteous but cruel to refuse or hesitate, and he hastened to comply. "'And now, my lord duke,' he said, when he had regained his freedom, "'do I suppose aright? Are ye my lord duke of Gloucester?' "'I am Richard of Gloucester,' returned the other. "'And you! How call they you?' Dick told him his name, and presented Lord Foxham's signet, which the Duke immediately recognized. "'Ye come too soon,' he said. "'But why should I complain? Ye are like me, that was here at watch two hours before the day. But this is the first sally of mine arms. Upon this adventure, Master Shelton, shall I make or mar the quality of my renown. There lie mine enemies.' under two old skilled captains, Risingham and Brackley, well posted for strength, I do believe, but yet upon two sides without retreat, enclosed betwixt the sea, the harbour, and the river. Methinks, Shelton, here were a great blow to be stricken, and we could strike it silently and suddenly. "'I do think so indeed,' cried Dick, warming. "'Have ye my Lord Foxham's notes?' inquired the Duke and then Dick, having explained how he was without them for the moment, made himself bold to offer information every jot as good of his own knowledge. "'And for mine own part, my lord duke,' he added, "'and ye have men enough, I would fall on even at this present. For, look ye, at the peep of the day the watches of the night are over, but by day they keep neither watch nor ward, only scour the outskirts with horsemen. Now then,' when the night-watch is already unarmed, and the rest are at their morning cup, now were the time to break them. "'How many do you count?' asked Gloucester. "'They number not two thousand, Dick replied. "'I have seven hundred in the woods behind us,' said the Duke. Seven hundred follow from Ketley, and will be here anon. Behind these, and further, are four hundred more, and my Lord Foxham hath five hundred half a day from here at Holywood.' Shall we attend their coming, or fall on? My lord, said Dick, when you hang these five poor rogues you did decide the question. Churls, although they were, in these uneasy times they will be lacked and looked for, and the alarm be given. Therefore, my lord, if you do count upon the advantage of a surprise, you have not, in my poor opinion, one whole hour in front of you. I do think so indeed returned Crookback. "'Well, before an hour ye shall be in the thick on it, winning spurs. A swift man to Holywood, carrying Lord Foxham's signet. Another along the road to speed my laggards. Nay, Shelton, by the rood, it may be done.' Therewith he once more set his trumpet to his lips and blew. This time he was not long kept waiting. In a moment the open space about the cross was filled with horse and foot. Richard of Gloucester took his place upon the steps, and dispatched messenger after messenger to hasten the concentration of the seven hundred men that lay hidden in the immediate neighbourhood among the woods. 
and before a quarter of an hour had passed, all his dispositions being taken, he put himself at their head, and began to move down the hill toward Shoreby. His plan was simple. He was to seize a quarter of the town of Shoreby lying on the right hand of the high road, and make his position good there in the narrow lanes until his reinforcements followed. If Lord Risingham chose to retreat, Richard would follow upon his rear, and take him between two fires, or, if he preferred to hold the town, he would be shut in a trap, there to be gradually overwhelmed by force of numbers. There was but one danger, but that was immediate and great. Gloucester's seven hundred might be rolled up and cut to pieces in the first encounter, and, to avoid this, it was needful to make the surprise of their arrival as complete as possible. The footmen, therefore, were all once more taken up behind the riders, and Dick had the signal honour meted out to him of mounting behind Gloucester himself, for as far as there was any cover the troops moved slowly, and when they came near the end of the trees that lined the highway, stopped to breathe and reconnoitre. The sun was now well up, shining with a frosty brightness out of a yellow halo, and right over against the luminary, Shoreby, a field of snowy roofs and ruddy gables, was rolling up its columns of morning smoke. Gloucester turned round to Dick. "'In that poor place,' he said, "'where people are cooking breakfast, either you shall gain your spurs, and I begin a life of mighty honour and glory in the world's eye, or both of us, as I conceive it, shall fall dead and be unheard of. Two Richards are we. Well, then, Richard Shelton, they shall be heard about, these two. Their swords shall not ring more loudly on men's helmets than their names shall ring in people's ears. Dick was astonished at so great a hunger after fame, expressed with so great vehemence of voice and language, and he answered very sensibly and quietly that, for his part, he promised he would do his duty— and doubted not of victory if everyone did the like. By this time the horses were well breathed, and the leader holding up his sword and giving rein, the whole troop of chargers broke into the gallop and thundered, with their double load of fighting men, down the remainder of the hill and across the snow-covered plain that still divided them from Shoreby. End of chapter.